Father, thank you for this time together tonight. Thank you for a change in season. Thank you for nice, long, sunny days. Thank you for one another. Thank you for this building. Thank you for your word that is before us. Thank you that we can hear it. Thank you for the gift of your son, for eternal life in him. Thank you for your spirit who teaches us. We ask that now you would be at work among us. We ask that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see. We pray that you would give us soft hearts. Please help me to speak clearly. Please help me to show uh, your word. And please let your, your word land on our hearts. Let it be fresh to us. Take away the dullness that we have. In Jesus' name, Amen. So, before I read this, I'll just ask us one question. And that is, if you only had a couple of things to say to a church that was a little bit confused or feeling a little bit perplexed, what would you say to that church? Or, if there was uh, a very easily forgettable but profoundly powerful command and a short little tiny bit of teaching and you could only have one, what would it be? Or if you were to think about what is right at the heart of the message about Jesus and of about the defining characteristic of the church community, what would you say? Let's read 1 John chapter 4 verses 7 to 21 together. This is what John says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Saviour of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world... We are like Jesus. 
There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister, whom they have seen, cannot love God, whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Now, just a quick recap um, of the situation into which John is writing. So, uh, I think uh, John is writing to a church that has recently experienced a fairly significant exodus of people from the congregation. We see evidence of this in chapter 2, verse 19. Just look with me, it's just across there on the on page before. He says, they went out from us. Uh, he's talking about, he, he calls these particular people antichrists actually. But he says, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. I think that gives us a clue into the situation. People have left. Secondly, we see in chapter, uh, uh, still in chapter 2, but in verse 26, we see that deception is afoot. Let's read that together as well. He says, I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. So, I think the situation in 1 John is that people have left and it's left those who have remained feeling a little bit unsettled. Now, it could be that these people were claiming to have conquered sin entirely. That could be one of the issues at stake and so that's why John needs to say at the beginning of the letter, um, if we claim to be without sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That could be one element. Um, they were almost certainly also denying some key things about Jesus, in particular issues concerning the incarnation um, and certain aspects of Jesus' work on the cross. Hence John has to say things like, whoever confesses that the, uh, Jesus uh, has come in the flesh or that Jesus is the Son of God, is from God. Um, so it's likely that they were trigger issues um, uh, at play amongst these people. Now, what that means is that I think John isn't simply writing a generic letter. I think there's tension in the letter. There are kind of opponents to this church um, and these people uh, who have left have probably left both the church and the teaching of the apostles and so their faith is upset. Now, with that context in mind, I think that John's purpose in writing the letter is two-pronged. On the one hand, he wants to reassure those who have remained <coughs> that what they heard from himself and the other apostles was the real deal and thereby encourage them to continue in that original message that they heard. Or to put that another way, John is effectively saying to them, 
look, you guys are already in the right spot. What you heard from us was legit. Stay there, keep going and don't follow these other guys. That's, his, that's, that's, that's one prong. His other prong is to bring to light and thereby expose those who have left to highlight that they are imposters. And so he does that by putting some markers down regarding what does and doesn't constitute true faith. And so therefore the letter is a kind of a diagnostic letter in that sense. It's encouraging and assuring the believers on the one hand and exposing false believers on the other. Now, it's important to note at this point that the weight, this is key, falls on the side of reassuring. So notice the language that John uses when he addresses the church. You'll see it all over the place. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 18. Dear children... Chapter 2, verse 28. Dear children. Chapter 4, verse 1. Dear friends. Chapter 4, verse 7, as we've just read. Dear friends. Uh, Not only so, but notice the the, the, the positive and confident language he has about them in chapter 2, verse 12 to 14. I'm writing to you. You can see that there, this little poetic uh, piece that looks like a bit of a prophecy that pops out on the page. I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven. See how confident he is? I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Notice what he doesn't say. Notice how he's not saying, I write to you so that you may scrutinise your lives to feel uncomfortable and unsure about whether you really are in the faith. I write to you in order that I might put you on edge and make you uncertain about your faith. He doesn't do that, does he? He writes with confidence and it's important for us to remember that as we consider these diagnostic features of the letter. You see, it's important because John's not got a guilt trip but at the same time it needs to be said that there is a sort of healthy self-assessment going on, right? And I think that that's right for us um, as Christians, to have a healthy self-assessment <coughs> in order just to help us to consider that that is the case. Um, and so, you know, statements like trying to, to analyse ourselves, am I really loving Am I really one of the ones who love people and thereby have been born of God? I think it's okay to have a healthy self-assessment on that question. And one way to help us is to think about another concept or lots of other concepts in the Bible where there are just grey areas. Think about greed, for example. Where does the line, where does greed start? Where does need stop and greed start? as it were, right? What about gluttony? Where does full start and gluttony... Oh, sorry, where does full finish and gluttony start? Somewhere in there, you need to have a, a self-assessment with the help of God to say, I think this is actually gluttony for me. I think this is greed for me. 
I think this desire has turned into covetousness for me. I think this feeling of hurt has turned into bitterness for me. So that's just to say I think there are heaps of grey areas so we don't need to get bent out of shape by the idea of healthy self-assessment and at the same time I think scripture uses broad strokes. Right? Those who remain, those who love the brothers. There are plenty who just simply aren't remaining. They're just not here, they're not anywhere in the community, they are lit, they've left and they are not loving the brothers. But many here you guys, it's fair to say you are loving the brothers. You are remaining in the teaching. And so broad strokes. Perhaps those are just a couple of points to help us think about that diagnostic element of the letter. Now, that just by way of reorienting and and, um, reintroducing ourselves here, coming back to where we are today in the letter, um, (coughs) isn't it interesting what John brings the attention of this church to in a situation like they're in, right? These people have left, he's got a limited number of commands and so this is why I flagged that question up at the beginning. What would you say? What about all the things that John could say? And here, uh, look in verse 7, he's actually, there's, a, there's an exhortation. It's, a, it's, got, it's got force to it like a command. Dear friends, let us love one another. It's a, he's encouraging them into that. He's calling them into that. Hey, let's love one another. He calls them to the basics, as it were. He calls them to this central Christian ethic. And he calls them right back to this heart of the message about Jesus. <coughs> a love for one another that's rooted in God's love for them in Christ. How central and powerful is the news of God's love for humanity demonstrated through the giving of his son to die for our sins. How central and powerful and so easily neglected is the Christian ethic of genuine Jesus-shaped love for one another. So while uh, these verses today do contain diagnostic material, I think that that's the headline idea and I think that's the headline idea for us tonight. That's where I'm going to put our focus. That's the command that that John has here. Hey, let's love one another. And then he's going to give us some reasons for why, why we ought to love one another and we're going to look at those together briefly and then we're going to look at one other aspect of our love together at the end that might come as a little bit of a surprise. Now, sorry, this is an extended introduction. Last thing to say on the introduction is that we're not going to cover all the verses. We're going to focus on verses 7 to 12. We're not going to look at 13 to 21. I would love to talk to you about verses 13 to 21. So if something that we read in there made you think, ooh, yes, he's going to talk about that tonight, I'm very sorry, but definitely catch me afterwards and let's talk about it. I do think that it's interesting. We just don't have an hour and a half. Um, (coughs) Right. Now, John's first words, let us love one another. 
perhaps you are like me and already you're thinking to yourself I wish it was a different message I wish it was a different word tonight I've heard this message before and I'm pretty sure I know where this sermon goes God loves us God sent his son and then we love each other But let's pause. Isn't this an easily neglected command? Does that kind of thinking reveal that we might have missed something? What is that quest for something new? Where God's love for us in Christ has perhaps lost its thrill. What about this? Imagine if we really did get God's love for us. And imagine if we really did live it. So maybe we do, maybe, maybe it is helpful for us to ponder afresh and pray for God's help. And one way perhaps to help uh, us to consider our need for this word is to consider who these words are addressed to. He says, <coughs> let us love one another. And I think John is talking about the one another of the church. I think John is saying to the church, hey, us here, let us love one another. Now, I don't know about you, but this makes a difference to me. I find it much easier to champion loving a vague and undefined everybody. I love everybody. Easy. But I don't love so-and-so and and this person and those other three people who, (coughs) incidentally, are actually the very people in my world. I don't love those people. Because it's easy to love the shopkeeper that you see one day a week for 40 seconds. It's hard to love the church member who didn't text you back or who said something that offended you or didn't invite you to the party etc, etc. So maybe as we consider what John is calling the readers to, we'll appreciate a little bit better his reasons for why. And perhaps, perhaps it's the kind of situation that we're in, the pressure of the situation that the church John's writing into. You see, people are leaving, people are frazzled, and they need to hear that word. Hey, hey, hey. Let's love one another. And maybe there's a little bit of that with Irving. It's easy for for loving one another to bump off the radar when pressure comes. There's the internal strain as more people are carrying more weight and responsibility as this, that's where we are as a church. There's extra pressure as more money is involved and we know how money can be a trigger for all kinds of tension. There's the extra pressure simply because of the complexity of building our new home. And we could add, as a final dimension, the fact that we're trying to run this whole show as a charity. We have volunteer time. So we should give thanks for what God's doing among us in building this new home with the the Irving. But also be honest with ourselves that this pressure can bring challenges with it and one of those challenges can be continuing to pursue one and uh, love with one another. So, maybe it's good 
Uh, right, so John's reasons, a little bit digging into his reasons. The first headline is because love is congruent. I like that I get to use the word congruent. I haven't used that since year 10 maths. So, John's reason for why we should love one another is because it is fitting. It is congruous with who we are that we should love. We love because of the principle of like produces like. Look at verse 7 and 8. Let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. John's point here is that there is a connection between who God is and our love. The logic is that God is love, and therefore people who know God and have been born of God also love. It's pretty simple. Like produces like. It's what would be expected for God's children. Now, just pause on this one idea here. God is love. Now, that's a base assumption for John. And John moves from there to what we should be like. But there are at least five dangers in the statement God is love and in this, in this text, in these verses 7 to 8. I'll run through them quickly. The first is to make <coughs> the equation go both ways and read it like this. God is love, therefore love is God. But that is not the way that the word is works. For example... David is a man. does not work if we switch it the other way around. A man is David. Or, sadly Paddy's not here, but Paddy, you're in the illustration. Paddy is kind. doesn't work if we flip it around. Kind is Paddy. Unless we have Yoda speak. The point here is that on the one hand we need to make sure we don't load up is with more than it can handle and also that we don't make an undefined and abstract idea like love into God. So that's not what John's saying. A second danger is to load up our concept of love, God is love, with whatever we wish. Such as, love wouldn't do that or love wouldn't stop me from doing what makes me happy. Because God's love may do precisely that. Especially if you've gone and defined happiness, however you see fit as well. Now, a third danger is that we make this the one and only thing we say about God. But, do we remember to remind one another that, quote, God is a consuming fire? Hebrews 12.29, which, I would argue in context, demands that we read it as a warning. A combo danger in here is that we load up our concept of love with whatever we wish and then take that conception and bend everything else we read in Scripture to conform to it. Basically what we need is we need all that is written about God to mutually inform one another. A fourth danger here is that we read John's statement and conclude 
that anyone who has ever exhibited a seemingly loving act must be a child of God. But this would be to take these words out of context of the whole letter and the letter out of the Bible. So we can't make one isolated sentence removed from its context become the total of our theology. Now, in some ways, I hope that I haven't been too condescending, but these dangers may seem too obvious, but it's legit many people read their Bible in this way today. So what's the fifth danger, you say? I think the fifth danger is that we spend so much time clarifying what these words do not mean that we fail to drink deeply from the living waters of what they actually do mean. And that's a real mistake as well. Love one another because love is from God. Indeed, God is love. And I think John wants us to pause here. I think he wants us to pause. He's, John is saying so many deep things in this letter, he can't move, we can't move quickly through him. Our God is love. How does he compare to the other gods on offer? How does the nature of God shape this community? A God who is love. Now the next thing John wants to do is take the church on a deeper dive into what he means by God's love. And so he zooms in to show it more clearly. It's like someone says, oh God's love, hey, where do we see that John? And John says, good question. We see it manifest in the fact that he sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Look at verse 9. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Notice there that it says his one and only son. That's not just there to give us uh, the size of God's family. He's not, that's not just a, this is so that you know that God only has one son. But I think that language is highlighting the value of the son. You see, we see the depth of the love in the value of the gift. And that's the same kind of logic that Paul uses in Romans 8, verse 32, where he says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, together with him, graciously give us all things? Paul, what's Paul's logic? Paul's logic is, God has already given us the most valuable thing there is, his son. So how could he withhold any other good thing? Which I think means the new creation. But you see how Paul's saying it's as though Jesus is more valuable than all things. And that's the same logic that John has here. God has shown his love by sending his precious son so that we might have life through him. God didn't give us a flash car or a nice bike. He gave us his precious son. 
Now we could linger here, but we need to move, keep cracking on, because I think John wants to zoom in a bit more. And it's as though in the next verse he zooms in even further and he says, look here, look right in here. Here's love. Check this out. He says, verse 10, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Not that we loved God. The love that God has for us doesn't originate as a response to our love, John says, but as a free act from God. This is the initiating love of God. And part of the beauty about the message about Jesus is that God gave him to us not because we deserved him, but in spite of the fact that we did not deserve him. This is again the same logic as Paul in Romans 5 verse 8. He says, God demonstrates his love in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While you, before you, O believer, did anything, not while you were neutral, while we were still sinners, Christ died for you. The initiating love of God to come to get you, the sinner. How does that shape the way that you feel about yourself day to day? Or when you don't feel worthy of God's love? Here is love. Not that you loved God, but that he loved you. Linger. Because this is the God that we're talking about and this is the God and this is his love that John wants to bring to the attention and bring to the minds of the church. He says, let this love shape how you live. Let us love one another. Because we've been born of God and this is the kind of love that God has shown to us. And so John brings his point around full circle. (coughs) Dear friends, Verse 11. Dear friends, since God so loved us, since God so loved us in this way, we also ought to love one another. Yeah, that makes sense, doesn't it? And it's such an important point for us that we love. This is, John picks this up again, so let's just quickly flip the page and just cast your eye down. John's got exactly the same point in verse 19. We love because he first loved us. That is the order of Christian love. 
and this is a point where John just sends the, sends the roots down deep and puts deep theological roots into the love that we have for one another as a church. <coughs> so if we have a few things to focus on, remember God is love, look at how God has loved us, and let's love one another. Now a final short point as perhaps a surprise. Look at verse 12. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Now what's going on there? I think what John's doing is he wants... He's, he's elaborating, he's kind of... He's, he's, on the, he's on the God is love, God loved us, let's love one another buzz... And now he's kind of, he's riffing on that a bit and he's going to add a new thing. And I think he's elaborating on the beauty of our love for one another and giving this additional information as to why we should love one another. And what he says is he says that love one another because our love actually completes God's love in some way. Isn't that remarkable? Look what he says. No one has ever seen God, okay, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Isn't that interesting to think of a a, a sort of incompleteness to God's love unless it has, has culminated in us actually loving one another? What a thought. I think there's a surprise there. God's love, I think John is saying, is not intended to simply terminate on our enjoyment of it, but actually it finds its full expression through our love for one another. So we've come to the end. And what's the conclusion? I think God is encouraging us to love one another. And I think he's doing it like this. I think he's saying, let's look at the love. He says, God says, hey, look at the love that I displayed to you in the sending of my precious son before you had ever loved me to die as a sacrifice to take away your sins so that you could be with me forever. Think about that love. And just as I have loved you, so you too go and love one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, open up the eyes of our hearts to know your love for us. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen.